0: the book of Hebrews. We finished chapter 8 last time, and that would inexorably lead us to chapter 9, but we're actually going to back up a second and pick it up in 8.13, which is the last verse in chapter 8, and it really goes better with chapter 9. I have no idea why they broke the chapters where they did. If I had been the breaker of chapters, I would have broken it after verse 12 and put verse 13 in chapter 9. So, Hebrews 8, 13. And speaking of a new covenant, we make the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And again, last time I pointed out the tense of the verbs, everything is future and progressive. So, speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That's present tense. And then what is becoming, future tense, obsolete, and growing old future also is ready to vanish away it has not vanished away and I went into a riff last time that once it is created everything is instantly obsolete because all that means is that there is a new and improved model that has been either made or on the way so common example of course is your smartphone or your computer or any of that kind of stuff As soon as you buy one, you know, the next day in the magazines it all comes out, ah, there's a new one coming. Though This computer or phone or everything that you now have that you've just paid good money for, which is already obsolete, is still perfectly useful. It doesn't mean that it has disappeared. It simply means that it is possible to get another one. And as soon as you get that one, that one becomes obsolete too. So you, you can never catch up. The problem with the Torah is not the content of the words, it is the medium upon which it is written. And the medium upon which it is written is tablets of stone, which is a metaphor for hearts of stone. And it's intended to be written on hearts of flesh, which is what the new covenant says. And what we'll get to tonight is where we are in that process. So having said all that, the New Covenant only makes the first one obsolete in the sense that the New Covenant will be written where it's supposed to be written as opposed to on tablets of stone. That's the only change that I see in Scripture. Now, to chapter 9. Now, even the First Covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. was called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." And of course, everybody here immediately said, that's wrong which it is. In fact, this is one of the places that people who are critical of the book of Hebrews fetch up because he has misdescribed the tabernacle. In fact, in the earthly tabernacle the altar of incense is in the holy place, it is not in the most holy place. So he has got the altar of incense on the wrong side of the curtain. I am personally willing to sort of put him in the same category as Stephen. Remember Stephen when he was being stoned? Stephen said a couple of things that weren't just exactly correct. And I sort of thought, well, in the process of being stoned, you can sort of forgive him if he stumbles a little bit on these facts. I am assuming that whoever wrote this is dictating it. One of the things that was very common in that society is people didn't write their own letters. They went to a scribe and they dictate it. And so you can see somebody walking up and down and talking and having perhaps misspoken and the scribe wrote it down wrong. And then it's not like hitting the back button on your word processor. By the time he's at the end of the letter and he notices that, oops, that is wrong, you would have to then redo the entire letter, which is an expensive and laborious process. Having said that, the description of the tabernacle is incorrect. Now, having described, albeit imperfectly, the tabernacle itself, what he's now going to do is describe how the high priest interacts with that, and then he's going to compare it with how Yeshua acts. So verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We'll stop there for a minute. First off, the altar of incense was lit every day. So if the altar of incense were on the holy side of the curtain, that wouldn't work. So for the altar of incense, the prayers to go up every day, it has to be on the side outside of the Holy of Holies in order for that to work so then the other thing that is being said here we made a big deal last time of the fact that the high priest has got to bring two blood offerings first he goes in with the blood of a bull for himself and his family and that having been accepted he comes back out and gets the blood of the goat and takes that in, and that is for the note it says, unintentional sins of the people. Again, this is one of the places where people get a bit confused, as I think everybody who has been here for a while knows. The table of sacrifices in the Torah are for unintentional sins. There is no sacrifice in the Torah for the sin of rebellion. There's a couple of ambiguous ones where perhaps you defraud your brother that could be regarded as an intentional sin but there's only one or two of them and they're fairly specific all of the other sins that it is possible to commit if they are intentional there is no sacrifice in the Torah that clears them and so the writer of Hebrews here says in the second half of verse 7 which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people So, again, the idea there is there's no sacrifice in the the earthly tabernacle for rebellion. Referring to Psalm 51, which is quoted later here in the book of Hebrews, so we'll actually get to that. And it was a psalm written by David on the incident of the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And what he says is God, we both know that. Blood of bulls and goats will not clear this. Because if it would, I've got a whole kingdom full of them. But both of us know that that isn't going to work. The only thing you're going to accept for me is a broken and contrite heart. And then, once you've accepted my broken and contrite heart, then I will bring blood of bulls and goats as before. So now back to Hebrews 9.6. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers first for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. I finally figured out what that means. What that is saying is, it's a reference to the new heaven and the new earth. The present age is the anteroom or the holy place outside of the holy of holies. So this current heaven and earth which we live in, which will be done away with and replaced with a new heaven and a new earth, at that point you will have direct unfettered access God because he will be in the New Jerusalem. You won't need street lights and all that kind of stuff because the glory of the Lord will fill the place. So what he's saying here is this two-chambered tabernacle is a metaphor for the current heaven and earth as opposed to the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, that's where God is going to be directly accessible, but now he is not. And so... Here in this economy which we live in, God is not directly accessible as he will be in the new economy. So the idea of this dual chambered tabernacle is, as he's saying, a metaphor or symbol for the current age. Verse 8 again. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic of the present age, the first section is symbolic of the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The Reformation being the new heaven and the new earth. And what he's saying there is, what I just said, the sacrificial regime in the earthly temple cannot handle intentional sin and rebellion. It's not designed to do that. And when we read the table of sacrifices in Leviticus, it's all very clear. These are for unintentional sins. So what it's saying here is those sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper because they do not touch the thing that separates us from God, which is our rebellious spirit. So now I'm all the way down to verse 11. But when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the idea is that... uh, blood of bulls and goat, if you will are a metaphor for our own death for sin and so what Yeshua does is he does the actual death for our sin and he takes his own blood in there and he sheds his own blood on the altar and that clears willful sin or the sin of rebellion and that's the only sacrifice that is capable of clearing that degree of sin. Verse 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You all know the blood of bulls and goats, you also know the ashes of a heifer, the red heifer whose ashes are a tahar to my fire In other words, if you are clean and you handle the ashes, you become unclean. If you are unclean and the ashes are sprinkled on you in water solution, you become clean. And what he's saying is that all of that is unable to cleanse the conscience. But The blood of Yeshua, which he offered himself without blemish, then purifies our conscience from dead work to serve the living God. In other words, we have the assurance that our sins of rebellion are forgiven, covered with blood. And because of that, then we can serve the living God cleanly. Now, we're down to 915, and this is going to get tricky and I am going to assert that all of your translations are incorrect. I'm going to read it in English Standard, and then I'm going to go over and read it in Young's Literal Translation. YLT, Young's Literal Translation, is essentially a mechanical translation of the Greek. I mean, it wasn't mechanical because it was done by a man, and it was done in the 19th century, but it would be like something that Google would produce. You know, if you fed the Greek into Google and had Google Translate, or like, you know, when you see signs in English in Japanese or Korean or Chinese, it's called English. So Young's literal translation is like English, except it's Greek. So now, I'm going to read it in English Standard, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to read it in YLT. So verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So far, so good. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's okay. Now, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That's a true statement, but that's not what the scripture says. What I just read is in fact true. If you make a will, people don't get to come and go through your stuff until after you're dead. That's what was just said there. So now let's go to Young's Literal Translation. And I will pick it up now at verse 16 again. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. For a covenant over a dead victim... "...is steadfast, since it has no force at all when the covenant victim liveth." So what it's saying there is, in order to make a covenant, you must kill something, the covenant victim. Most often it's a bull or a sheep or something like that. In other words, I'm making a covenant with you. We sit down, we make a covenant, and we'll kill a sheep and shed the blood to ratify the covenant. Yeshua is the covenant victim here. He is the victim whose blood and whose death seals the covenant. It is not the case that he has made a will where we get to go through his stuff once he's dead. So your translations all give the impression that there is somewhere this last will and testament that only went into effect when Yeshua died. And that's not what's being said. What's being said is there is a new covenant. And that new covenant, in order to be ratified, must involve the death of a victim, a sacrifice, the one who is sacrificed. And in the case of the new covenant, the victim who is sacrificed is Yeshua himself. And without the shedding of that blood, the covenant is not in effect. So, again, Young's literal translation, Hebrews 9, verse 16 For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim. To come in is necessary. Now, to come in is necessary. In other words, the death of a covenant victim is necessary for the covenant to be in force, for the covenant to come in. So let's say it again. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. And then from there on, everything's okay. The two parties to the covenant do not die. There is a victim in between that must die in order for the covenant between the two parties to be ratified. This is the way covenants are cut. And notice that I said covenants are cut. You cut a covenant. In cutting a covenant, what you do is you shed an innocent victim's blood. Now I'm gonna switch back to English Standard because YLT is really hard to read. So now I'm all the way down to verse 18. So verses 16 and 17, I am asserting, are mistranslated in virtually all of your Bibles. And what's going on there is we're talking instead of a last will and testament, which is the way most of your Bibles read, what we're talking about is the cutting of a covenant, and the death that is necessary to establish that is a covenant victim. Some innocent victim between the two parties. And it's usually an animal, but of course in this case it is Yeshua himself. So now, 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Second mistake in Hebrews. As far as I can find, he did not sprinkle the book. He sprinkled the people. That's true. I cannot find anywhere in the Torah where he sprinkled the book itself. I'm not saying he didn't do it. It's just I can't find it in the Torah. He sprinkles the altar. He sprinkles tent. He does all sorts of blood sprinkling. But I have not found a place where he sprinkles the book itself. So this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So, what he's saying is the procedures set up and used in the earthly tabernacle are copies and mirrors of the one used in the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, you all know, for example, when Moses was erecting the tabernacle god says all right now make sure that you do it according to the one you saw up on top of the mountain I want them, i want them looking both the same and what this is saying is not only do the physical structures look the same but the rituals and procedures in both are the same and of course the earthly one is a copy of the heavenly one. so verse 23 thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right, let's stop there a minute. So what he's saying is the procedures in the heavenly place are exactly the same as the procedures in the copy on earth. And the only difference is, Instead of bringing somebody else's blood in, as the high priest does in the earthly tabernacle, he comes in with his own blood. And furthermore, he only has to do it once. Now, this is the key. Verse 26. He only has to do it once, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. What that is saying, at least as I understand it, is the heavenly tabernacle is outside of time or outside of our time stream, put it that way. What that means then is that the sacrifice of Yeshua covers the sin of Adam, covers the sin of David, covers my sin, covers my son's sin, covers my grandson's sin, and so on, because it is not in our time stream. Because if it were in our time stream, it is not in fact acceptable for me to go out to Travis out in Fort Morgan and say, okay, I need a sheep because I'm going to do some sinning. All right, now I'm going to go over here and sacrifice this guy and I've got some heavy sinning I'm going to do next week so I just want to get the sheep out of the way now. You're all snickering, as you should because that's ridiculous. The only time a sacrifice covers the sin is after the sin is complete. It is not acceptable for me to do a preemptive sacrifice. Got some sinning to do tomorrow. We'll get a sacrifice done here, and and then I can go out and sin with a clear conscience because the sacrifice is already done. You can't do that. Everybody knows that's ridiculous. So the only way that Yeshua's sacrifice covers my sin is if it is done outside of time because Yeshua's sacrifice was 2,000 years before I did my first sin. Abraham's okay because it's after Abraham, an ex post facto sacrifice. So the fact that it covers Abraham and Adam and David and all that kind of stuff is unremarkable because it is later in time in our time stream than their sin. But it is before our sin in my time stream, so I am 2,000 years in the future, so there's no way that that sacrifice could cover a sin that I had not yet done unless it is outside of our time stream. That's why, for example, as you read the Bible, talking about God, you're, get all fumbled up because he sometimes speaks like it happened in the past he sometimes speaks like it's happening in the future and sometimes he speaks like it's happening now the way i personally regard it is it is the conversation of somebody who is not in our time stream so i'm all the way down to hebrews 9:27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment So Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what he's saying is, Yeshua has died once, he has been judged, he has been found innocent. So the next time he comes, he will have been past all of that. This chapter 9 of Hebrews stalls a lot of people, just because... A, you've got the problem with the translation of verse 15 and 16, and then you've got the fact that the sacrifice isn't happening in our time stream, but the sacrifice happened literally before the foundation of the world and at the end of time. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what he's saying you got to start back in verse 27, which is the beginning of the sentence. So the sentence starts in verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Man dies once, and then comes judgment. Messiah died once has been judged, been found innocent, and when he comes again, he will then not come to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. If you now fast forward to the book of Revelation, what is obvious in the book of Revelation is that there is great tribulation on the earth, and the people of God are suffering under the hand of the Antichrist and so when he comes back to save them we are not talking about salvation to eternal life we are talking about physical salvation to win the battle and in Revelation you have got all of the plagues that happen in Exodus not in the same order and you have got all sorts of stuff going on in Revelation and so when he comes back it is to save his people not in the sense of eternal life but in the sense of okay we need to go dispossess the enemy of this place and it's very much a Joshua going into the land thing at which time he will save those who are under the oppression of the worldly system and set up a thousand year reign I think that's what's being referred to at the end of verse 28